Hey friends, welcome to the Redeemer Queens Park podcast. Redeemer exists to help connect Jesus to people, people to community, and community to mission. We're gathering on Saturdays at 3 p.m. to worship God and fellowship. If you ever have any questions, or if we could be of help in any way at all, then please give us a shout at hello at redeemerqp.com. We hope you'll be encouraged as you hear another one of our Bible talks. Let's listen to the next episode. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. It's on page 670 if anybody's got a Bible and want to find it. It reads, The words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, every turning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear it's full of hearing. What has, it, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is chasing after the wind. For with much, much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. This is the word of God, Thomas. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Ashlyn. Thank you, Band. Let me add my welcome to those that have already been extended around the room. I'm really glad you're here today, but I recognize after hearing that read, you might be wondering what in the world you have gotten yourself into. I'm a, I am uh, very much excited to be uh, taking a step into this most interesting, and I mean that in a very positive sense, this most fascinating of books in the entire Bible. I'm here to introduce it to you today and over the next 11 weeks, we're going to study this and we're going to see if anything good 
can come of this. We're going to test its own thesis. Is all of this meaningless or not? But, uh, but let me begin here. Let me, let, me, let me take you to Colorado over in the States. Earlier this summer, our family had an opportunity to uh, go out to the great, uh, the great Rocky Mountains and spent some time in Colorado, Estes Park. And each day we'd, we'd travel up into the Rocky Mountains and we'd be able to have a look around. And it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. And um, something you see when you go to Rocky Mountain National Park, whenever you visit a park in the States, and park's kind of a silly word for these massive, massive reservoirs of land and mountains and trees and rivers and streams. But whenever you visit one of them, you find a park ranger. And the park ranger is the person with all the information. They're the one that can tell you where to be by sunset. The park ranger can tell you where the danger lies. The park ranger simply understands the contours of the park, and they know how to give you the information so you can get around the park in a way that's safe, in a park that makes sense, in a way that the park can be enjoyable to you and not harmful for you, right? Let me show you our little park ranger. This is Shep right here, absolutely flexing on him, just showing us where to get around the park. He, uh, he was actually inspired by the park rangers you'd see as you drive into this thing. And uh, I mean, they're, they're genuinely amazing. They have a way of saying, oh, if you only have four hours, here's what you must go do. Be here at this time. Don't worry about this at this time. The park ranger has a way of helping you navigate the park, even Shep. Whose son is this? All right, so uh, more locally to London, you would think of a tour guide. Tour guides know the place better than you do. They know how to help orient you to that place so you can experience everything that place has to offer. They know how to give you information so that you can look at the place that you're both standing in, but the place makes sense. Now, this isn't entirely unlike the maps that you'll see on the underground tube or an overground train, they help you understand where you are, they help you understand what's ahead, and they help you make decisions about if you're going to alight here or if you're going to alight there. Now, every book in the Bible, every book in the Bible, all 66 of them, they resemble these analogies, but Ecclesiastes particularly so. Ecclesiastes determines to show us how to find our way, who will in the end be the way, the truth, the life, Jesus Christ. And the voice telling the story of Ecclesiastes could be thought of as a park ranger, given to us to help us navigate this modern, broken world in which we live. Where should I go? Where should I not go? Um, what happens if I spend too long over here? Um, is this mountain safe? Ooh, at what time I can go and visit, but I, I can't live there? Okay. The voice of Ecclesiastes is a bit of a park ranger speaking to us, a bit of a tour guide for this broken and modern world to help us understand where we are, what's gone wrong, what can be made right, and what our lives ought to be about in the end. So the theme for, for today is, is just very briefly, a tour guide and a sure foundation. We get both of them in chapter one, and I hope as we begin this book here, you'll find yourself uh, properly orientated to it by getting to have a look at these most fascinating words in the entire Bible. 
we'll be able to start to hear the tour guide cluing us into the streets of life, explaining what's going on around us, starting to provide some real-time navigation for where we should go and where we shouldn't go. It's all right here. So let's move into it together. You, you see right there in, in the Bible, in the book of Ecclesiastes, these first few words. The words of the teacher, the son of David, the king of Jerusalem. And depending on the translation of the Bible you have, you're going to see some different words translated here. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Who's speaking and what are they speaking about? Let's ask those five journalistic questions as we get around this this afternoon. We'll consider the questions. You know them quite well. The, the who, the what, the where, the when, the how, and the why. Let's ask those journalistic questions as we get around this. It'll help, it'll help situate us. It'll help us get to know the guide who intends to lead us for the next three months in this community. Let's, let's consider who this guide is. Let's have a little get-to-know-you session. And the first thing we do is we consider who is it that is speaking. What are the credentials of this guide? Has this person actually passed the test to navigate us through the contours of this thing called life? We begin with a who. Who wrote it? Who wrote this book? Who's speaking to us today? Do they have credentials is this something that I should come back to and hear another week and another week after that? Or should I just let this thing just pass? Who's talking? Most likely, his name is Solomon. At minimum, this is some sort of Solomonic figure or king. He gives his credentials away right there in the first two verses, but then you scroll down and you see he gives you more information in verse 12. He is the son of David. Son is always used to refer to an immediate biological descendant. So not really a metaphorical term. He's saying, I belong to David. He's also saying he was king in Jerusalem. Well, Solomon would be the only biological king who reigned in Jerusalem who actually comes from David. So this is corroborated in verses 1 and verse 12. But the, 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 the park ranger, the guide who intends to show us around, he wants to put us on the bus, he wants to put you on the boat, wants to take you up in the air, he's going to show you the contours of life. He's also, given his, he's also given himself a bit of a nickname or a moniker that he's going to call himself by. And it's Kohelet. It's a Hebrew word, which means the preacher or the teacher. So all three of those are going to be appropriate terms for us to clue in when we hear the tour guide speaking. Kohelet, the preacher, the teacher. The word is interesting. It means he's the member of an assembly. He's the convener of a gathering. It actually means the collector. So he's a collector of people, and he's a collector of wise sentences. And this is the tour guide. He has done his research. He knows what it is to be king. He's in a royal family. And this is who speaks as we journey. When did he write it? Well, he probably wrote this towards the end of his life. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, it tells us that the major building projects were complete. And then when you go and you corroborate that against 1 Kings 7, it helps us see that this was at least in the 30th year. Uh, the author actually fell into a season. He knew God, he had relationship with God, and he actually went into this dark season. He fell into idolatry. His season was marked by the word unbelief. He didn't want anything to do with God. 
Yet he discovered some things in that season. And those negative things are written down next to these positive things. And we have all of it here that we can study and we can gain from. So this was probably written out sometime between 940 and 930 B.C. Where did he write it? Well, he wrote it in the context of a young and united kingdom. After Solomon, the kingdom of Israel is going to be divided into the north and the south. And our author, as he goes right here, he's writing during a time of peace. And that's going to be really important when we listen to him unload over the next couple of months because he doesn't sound like somebody writing from a time of peace. He sounds like somebody writing from a war zone of life. You wouldn't expect him to know peace by some of the things that he says. But he was writing in a time of peace rather than war. So let me slow my roll right here and let's settle down into it just a little more. What is he talking about? What is this? You're, you're talking a book of the Bible begins by calling everything meaningless. What is going on here? I mean, some people are thinking, I thought we got around together to talk about like the Savior, talk about Jesus, talk about salvation, talk about the Spirit of God, talk about some massive life force that can make a difference in my life. What is this? Well, let's settle into it. And let me introduce you to some of our author's biggest themes. A word he's going to come back to again and again and again and again and again, he's going to say it 37 different times, is the Hebrew word hebel or Hevel. Let's all say that out loud together. H-E-B-E-L. Let's all say it together. The word's tricky. The word's tricky because there's constant word plays throughout this wonderfully written book. The word shows up sometimes in a word play and sometimes not. Sometimes it's intended to rhyme with something around it and sometimes it's not. So it gets translated a lot of different ways. But here are some ways the Hebrew word hevel is commonly understood. It's commonly understood to be vanity or meaningless or a breath. Kind of like the chill breeze we can feel coming through this room. And lest some of us want to start complaining, do you remember how hot it was just a few weeks ago? Okay? But it's a great sermon illustration. Just as the breath kind of tickles in across the room and it disappears, that is the Hebrew word hevel. You see this listed in other times and in other places in Scripture. Uh, one theologian, Ian Proven, says you could translate this breath of breath or mist of mist or air of air. And then the rest of the book unpacks what that means. So we're not going to get to the bottom of it today. We're just going to get introduced to it today. and We're going to have to come back and we're going to have to lean in and we're going to have to linger from week to week to week to see what this is to see what this thesis on life is really about. Air of air, everything is air. As we settle into it a little bit, um, amazingly, this Hebrew word, hevel, it appears 37 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, yet when you add up the consonant and vowel patterns on the old Hebrew word, it actually adds up to the number 37 as well. As we see it, we should go for both concrete and abstract um, interpretations of what it means. Here's some of what this Hebrew word hevel means. And here's some of what Ecclesiastes has to say. Ecclesiastes wants you and I to know that life is like the wind. 
think of a candle, and you blow the candle out, you think about what that smoke looks like for just a few moments. You can see it. It's absolutely real. But you try to grab that, and it'll slip right through. You blow a candle out, and as the smoke comes up for just a moment, you try to, you try to grab some of that, you try to shove it in your pocket, you try to take it with you. It's like trying to pocket the wind. And our tour guide means well with us. He intends to help us. And what he says to us, he says, all of this, this is like the wind. This is elusive. This moment won't last forever. Some of you said, thank God. Don't worry, I've got about 20 minutes left and I'm out. This weekend won't last forever. Our kids' ages, they won't keep forever. Our parents don't last forever. Life doesn't last forever. And Ecclesiastes is going to invite us to journey with this. Journey with the fact that we can't really control life. It's going to confront us with who we are. We are a people, not we because we're somewhat special. We, humanity, we constantly imagine that this isn't true. We think this is going to last forever. We think we're going to live forever. We think what's going on right now is ultimately significant and it's going to make all the difference in the end. But Ecclesiastes is going to be a different voice. Ecclesiastes is going to talk to us. We're going to find our tour guide taking us around and testing the foundation of some of our lives. We're going to find him pushing us to consider, are we building on granite or are you building your life on sand? Ecclesiastes, this voice can be trusted as he takes us around. This is part of the wisdom literature of the Bible. It's intended to be understood in in a specific way of reading and understanding some rules of communication. We'll consider those as we go. But you need to know this about our tour guide. The preacher experiments with everything around, around him and wants us to reflect on our own experiences as well. So practically, this is a book of the Bible that invites you whether you consider yourself to be a Christian or not, whether you consider yourself to be a worshiper of the one true living God or not, this book of the Bible invites you to take some of the claims here into the other six and a half days of your week and to test them and to see if they're true or not. So if you're a Christian and you're in the room, we ought to to test this. We ought to weigh it up. But if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're in just the right place. Because the tour God believes he has found a way through the rubble and through the brokenness and through the illusions and the puzzles and the mazes of this thing called life. He believes he's found the way to have real lasting significance in a world that feels like it's just passing by like the wind. And he invites us to have what he had. But the only way we can know or not is to read these words, listen to these words, discuss these words, and test these words. If you put your eyeballs on verse 3, maybe, we could just reflect on it together. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? It's a question that demands an answer. And if I could gently speak to you where you are right now on the spot, at the end of your life, 
what will the surplus of your life be? Will you leave something behind that is a lasting monument to all the effort? Or, as he argues throughout chapter 1, we work, 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 and we toil, toil, toil. We die. Relatively few people remember us. The money we made or the business we created gets handed over to some child that doesn't take it as seriously as we did. And once they've spent through that, that's forgotten and the world moves on. He talks about life as, as if it were some massive hamster wheel. You jump in the hamster wheel and you just run, 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 run. Hamster gets tired. Hamster falls out of the wheel, has a snack, has a drink, lays down, takes a nap. What does the hamster do? The hamster just loads back up in the wheel. Run, 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 run. And the tour guide of life leans in. He's like, could you just pay attention to what's actually going on in the world? Pay attention. And he reads these words here. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. And you think like, well, surely this isn't meaningless. And he's like, he's like, no, like there is a wearisome repetitiveness to all of this that feels like labor. Verses 5 to 8, the preacher focuses on the threefold pattern in the world that's matched with the threefold pattern in human experience. Look at verses 5 through 8. He talks about the sun, the wind, and the water, which leads to those themes of speaking and seeing and hear hearing. It's a literary masterpiece. Like when you look at this and you feel like, I don't understand, it's with you, not with the text. It's amazing. He says the world is more secular, cyclical than linear. The sun just goes up. It chases its tail just to go up again. And it brings us to this point. Here's his point. Here's the translation on what's happening. He says, when you really think about it, people, we are like the insatiable sea. Water constantly flowing into the sea, but the sea's never full. It's always just kind of right there. And this is what he means in chapter 1. All, all, all of this feels very, very wearisome. The eye is never full, right? When's the last time you scrolled Instagram and your experience at the very end of that scroll was that's it, perfect. I'm full. I never need to scroll again. <laughs> When's the last time you went on holiday and you, know, and, and you walk away like you were heading to the crummy airport wherever you went and you're thinking to yourself, you know what? I have smelled it all. I have tasted it all. I have touched it all. I have looked at it all. I'm good. I don't need another holiday. No, we're not like that, are we? No, because just as water pours into the ocean again, and water pours into the ocean again, and it never fills the ocean, so the things of this world, they pour into a human soul. They wash into a human life. They come in through our ears. They come in through our ears. They come in through our noses. They come in through our mouths. 
And the eye never reaches the point where it cannot take in more. The ear never becomes so filled with sound that it cannot accept any more impulses from the outside world. Humans never think, this is it, I am full. I've heard it all, I've done it all, I've said it all, I have everything that life can offer. And the author does something that is just fascinating with this. He brings us into these moments where he sets up a dynamic for you. And you're just invited, okay, so just sit in that. Don't run off from it. Don't explain it away. In fact, just carry that into the next six and a half days that you'll live. And you see if this is how it goes or not. And the author means well with us. By the end of this sermon and by the end of this collection of talks, he intends to help us see. I want to be full. I want to be met. I want to feel like my needs and my desires are met. But nothing in this world can satisfy. And when you can say that, then you're finally seeing the point of what he's up to. Our tour guide, who's to be trusted, he is showing us that at the end of the day, human beings gain nothing from all their toil under the sun. There's no surplus. There's no profit. We are never full enough to where we have gained so much and we can leave a leftover for the next person to come. Our hearts, as Martin Luther would say, they are yawning chasms. They constantly consume. As a 5th century North African bishop and theologian, Augustine would say, You, O Lord, you have made us for yourselves, and our hearts, they are restless until they rest in you. And this is what Ecclesiastes intends to prove. So here comes a really big, like, in-your-face statement. It's from Ecclesiastes. What does the book say? The book says, you are going to die. I know, it's like, welcome to church. You know, it's like, well... Here we are. The preacher answers his own question by pointing to the comings and goings of this world. Some think this constant phrase, under the sun, means some secularist perspective. It can certainly be understood there. Part of what the book's teaching me is it should be rightly understood in just the broadest sense. This is what life is like in God's world. We're going to live. We're going to work. We're going to think it's all going to add up to some monument of success that everybody's going to come and bow down to one day, but we are going to die. People are going to forget about us and the life will keep going. On this side of eternity, life is like a breath. We do things over and over and over again and then we die. Our children enjoy us. They remember us for a season and they forget and they die. And before you know it, you're not really remembered. And you're like, man, Thomas, you're being really tough. No, I'm not. I'm being really honest. Think about it. Do you know the name of your great, 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 great grandmother? And that's your family. And this is how it's going to go. Being a Christian doesn't stop this from being true. It should lead us to stop pretending that it isn't true. The preacher's laying the foundations for the main argument of the book. And listen to this next part. Only preparing to die will teach us how to really live. 
So hear the gracious invitation from this book. This book is actually a gracious invitation. This book is a gracious invitation to learn what it means to really live. If the fact is we're going to die, we're going to be forgotten, everything we're really giving our lives for and working so hard and missing family and missing friends and missing meals for, and we're going to die, and it's going to be like, who? If that's where this is headed, then how should we work this out before that happens? And this book invites us to cultivate something called wisdom. The first 11 verses, if there's a main point, it could be thought of as this. Accepting death is the first step in learning to live. We spend so much time escaping the fact of death, pretending against the fact of death, acting like the fact of death is an illusion. And the Bible says if you want to really live, if you want to really enjoy these few days that you get to run around this speck of dirt called earth, if you really want the most of this, then you need to anticipate the fact that one day you won't be here. And it's only when we stare that down. And for some of us, it's only until we take our friends and we help them stare that down that then we'll really be able to estimate the value of the days we've been given and we'll be able to actually live. Stop and think just for a moment, how much energy do we spend not accepting the fact that we're going to die? How much energy is exerted by this smoky little town in escaping and trying to hide from the fact that one day we won't be here? Opening our eyes is a real breakthrough. To be human is to be a creature, and to be a creature is to be finite. This book invites us to embrace our creatureliness, to embrace our limitations. This book is going to invite you to is going to invite you to stop trying to make permanent that which is not meant to be made permanent. This book is going to free you up if you'll listen to it by inviting you to stop trying to control things you were never meant to control and to trust God and to be present with the few people you have around you, to enjoy a good meal, to enjoy a good drink, to enjoy a spouse, to enjoy some friends, and to be connected to the God who made you while you're still here. So why? Why did the author write it and why should we read it? This is an invitation for the next three months of studying this together. This book is good news for those of us who struggle to make sense with what is happening in life. Some of us will read these words and we're going to find real comfort. Some of you hear an author in the Bible just shouting out, this is, this is meaningless, this is meaningless, all of this feels meaningless, and you feel like you found a friendly voice, and you have. Why does man madly pursue one thing and then another thing and then another thing and never feel like they know what the meaning of their life actually is? Well, Ecclesiastes is going to teach us this. It's going to lead us into the rest of the Bible to find our answer. So why should we study it? I'll give you a few of these and I'm going to be out of the way. Why should we study this? We should study this because it's honest about the troubles of life. Herman Melville, American novelist, I've you heard of him, he once called this the truest of all books because it captures the futility and frustration of life in a fallen world. 
Why should we read this? We should read this because in reading it, we can learn the difference between what the world offers and what God gives, and they are not the same thing. In listening to this tour guide, you can develop a way of reading the streets of life, and you can develop this sense called wisdom when you can know the good paths and the bad paths, if we'll listen. The author, the author, King Solomon, you'll see this next week. So if this was like marginal, come back next week and then don't come back again. Because next week you'll hear how the author had more money, he enjoyed more pleasure, and he possessed more wisdom than anyone in the world, and he still was frustrated by it all. And the same will happen to us. That will be our story in the end. If we live for ourselves instead of living for God, if we live blindly accepting the things this world wants to offer instead of pursuing that which God gives. This book asks the biggest and hardest questions that people still have today. It, it addresses questions that people are always asking. If you ask these questions, this book will provide answers. What is the meaning of life? Why am I so unhappy? Does God really care? Why is there so much suffering and injustice in the world? And is life really worth living? Should I keep going on? If you have that, this book will speak to you. Derek Kidner says wisdom is his home base, but he's an explorer. His concern is with the boundaries of life and especially with the questions that most of us would hesitate to push too far. If you ever wanted to read a book of the Bible whose author had this yeah, but attitude towards everything that existed, then Ecclesiastes is your book. And we should read it because it will help us worship the one true living God. Far from all the sad disappointments and all the skeptical doubts, this book teaches so many great truths about God. If you read this book, you will come to connect with God as the mighty creator and as the sovereign Lord over history. We should read this book because it teaches us how to live for God and not to live for ourselves. Some of us want this, but we don't know how to attain it, and this book will help tune us into it. And this is especially a good book for anyone who's trying to determine what to believe and what not to believe. And I just want to have a moment to speak especially to you. This is a book of the Bible specifically written for seekers, skeptics, and agnostics. This is a book for people who are on a quest to know the meaning of life, for people who are open to God but might even be skeptical about the Bible. For Christians, for all people, but especially for Christians, in a unique way, you'll come to discover if you lean in for this. This book actually has a bit of a backdoor function for believers who sometimes have their doubts. It's, it's a gateway for some people to enter a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. But it also becomes a safe place for people who worship God to actually ask some questions that we really wrestle with but we just don't have the courage to voice this, for, this book will give us that. It's beautiful. We're moving into it together. The English preacher John Wesley once preached his way through the book of Ecclesiastes, and when he started studying it and he started digging into it, this might be your experience if you go home and read this tonight or maybe on the long weekend that we have. Wesley wrote in his personal journal what it was like to begin studying this book. He says, began expounding the book of Ecclesiastes, 
Never before had I so clear a sight, either of its meaning or its beauties. Neither did I imagine that several parts of it were in so exquisite manner connected together, all tending to prove the, the one grand truth that there is no happiness apart from God. And the author of this book wants you to be happy. He wants you to have joy. He wants you to have a meaning for living that is so deep, that is so sure, that is so constant for you that you're not shaken. And the way he's going to get us there is by testing many of the things we're already doing. Some of the things we're already living our lives for. The only way they can be seen to be shaky and not solid and not worth living for is to be tested and studied and questioned. And that's where we're going together. So I want to give you some space to connect with God around these ideas. Gil, why don't you come on up, brother? You just take some time to reflect on what's been said so far. We will never find true meaning. We'll never find lasting happiness until we find it in God. That's the thesis. Entering Ecclesiastes is kind of like learning to see the world as a big mess. For some of us, that's going to take some relearning of what looks familiar to us because we actually see things that are a mess, but in seeing them, we've actually trained our hearts and minds to not connect that's mess or that's broken. So we can, re we can relearn how to see the world. This book could help us reframe the human experience. As we read the book, this is what we're going to see. Jesus is the true king. Jesus is the true son of David. Jesus is the true son of Solomon. Jesus is the one whom Solomon foreshadows. Jesus arrived on the scene and Jesus spoke in the Gospels in Matthew chapter 12, verse 42. One greater than Solomon is now here. So our tour guide Solomon, he gives us a foretaste of the true sage, Jesus Christ. So as we read this book, the language of Jesus is what we want to tune into. The teachings of Jesus, the footsteps of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, they inform our reading of what we see. So we conclude Ecclesiastes 1 with the words of Jesus from Matthew 7. Jesus says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And great was its crash. Ecclesiastes is an invitation to consider where are you building your life? What's the foundation under it all? What helps the whole thing to stand? And will it be there when the storms of life come or when the hurricane of death washes through? You see, friends, Jesus is our sure foundation. For David, God was his rock. For Solomon's father, 
the Lord was his deliverer, source, strength, shield forever. Consider the language of Jesus. He speaks with intimacy, kind of like Ecclesiastes. He speaks with lament like Ecclesiastes. He spoke with poetry like Ecclesiastes. Jesus used Proverbs and Jesus used questions. Jesus had a sacred cynicism about him where he would interrogate our ideas of gain and loss. He pressed it in Matthew, in Mark chapter 8, verse 36. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, like Solomon, the Savior, he intends to sift through the offers that the world makes. He intends to come along and to rummage through the treasures of our own heart, holding up different trinkets for us, asking us to look at them and consider if this is really providing the satisfaction we wish it does. He offers real gain, real gain of heaven that can be protected and won't rust or be eaten by moths or destroyed. Jesus, in John chapter 4, he talked about water, the use and misuse of sexual relationships. And Solomon is going to take us into the history of his sexual brokenness in the weeks ahead. And Jesus himself offered the water of himself to thirsting souls in John chapter 4. And he has water of satisfaction to offer to us in Salisbury Primary School as well. Without his provision and without his empowerment, we can have everything and have nothing. Jesus, in John chapter 17, in Jesus' prayer, he prayed that we would figure out that tension about how to stay in the world, yet how to forsake the gain of the world and to be engaged with the wisdom and purposes of God in the world. And the good news for us, church, God intends to make us guides. He wants to make us tour guides as rubbish of a tour guide as Solomon is. I mean, we're going to listen to him in the weeks ahead and you listen to him, he's like, that's your line? God intends for you and me to read this and for us to become trusted park rangers in this adventure of life. He intends to skill us, to teach us, to train us in such a way where we too will be able to help people out there navigate the rubble of this sin-stained world. Just as Adam and Eve were given a place for food and work in each other within which God would walk with them and God would satisfy their souls, so that pattern still remains for us. God intends to be found amidst coffee and porridge, the train rides and the bus delays. God is with us. And Ecclesiastes can tune us into this fact if we will listen. We will learn to see Jesus to be the guide and Jesus to be the one who knows the way of wisdom. And when we look around this mess of life, we can hear the words of Jesus in John 16, I have told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And when Solomon brings us to disaster after disaster after disaster of the human experience, we can listen and we can look to Jesus. And we can find meaning. But more than that, we can find satisfaction and indeed the salvation of our souls. So I conclude with this. If you read this book, it will bring you closer to God. And the Bible says that because of our sin, because we turned our back on God, 
So God gave us a word and we rejected his word and we chose our word because of sin. Romans chapter eight, verse 20 says it was subjected to futility. And the word futility is the same word that gets translated as hebel. Why is this world so meaningless? Why is this world so frustrating? It's frustrating. It feels meaningless because it is so full and it is so stained of sin. And here's the good news. Jesus, Jesus suffered the curse of hevel. He suffered the curse of sin. He suffered the curse of our futility when he died on the cross in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Now by the power of his resurrection from the grave, the emptiness of life under the sun, it can be undone. The creation itself can now be set free from corruption and from bondage. If we learn to trust in the Son, we can know what it is to be free from hevel. We can know what it is to live in wisdom because Jesus purchased wisdom for us on the cross. Jesus offers wisdom to us by the free gift of His grace. And the joy of living in His wisdom and living in His grace is that you find the Lord skilling you, equipping you, and shaping you to be a tour guide for others in the hevel-stained world called life, helping other people find safe passage. That's where we're going. Let's pray that he'd help us there. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of Jesus, the only sure foundation, the only sure name. And Father, we call out to you in the name of Jesus, asking for help. Each and every one of us, no one's immune. God, we pray that the themes of this book would take root in us. And we pray that they would grow themselves deep in us. We pray that the fruit of wisdom would be born up from us as a congregation in the days ahead. Father, we pray for anyone around today who does not know you. Maybe they're building their life on something else. They haven't met you and your love. Father, we pray that you would break through and you would encounter them. And we pray that you would provide that meaning and that soul satisfaction and that soul salvation that only you offer. So God, for the next few minutes, here we are. Your creatures created to know you, created to be connected to you, created to be satisfied by you. We pray that you would speak to us, minister to us on the spot, help us to build our lives on the granite, the rock of Jesus Christ. We ask in Jesus' name. Thank you.